Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Hello, thank you for joining us. I'm Timothy Roden, a library assistant at the Litchfield Park Public Library, and I'm joined by Caroline Rasso. Hi, and I am a uh, library paraprofessional here at uh, Litchfield Park. And we'll be discussing science fiction uh, through the lens of Star Trek, and specifically the Star Trek television shows. Um, but before we jump into Star Trek, let's do a little brief discussion on why science fiction is so important. Um, science fiction and most genre, I would say, offer us a lens to view different aspects of life. And I think that science fiction in particular allows us to view uh, things like social issues while still being detached from said social mm -hmm. issues. So we can, we can put them under a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's an easy way for um, people to um, take in different um, social ideas. Uh, it, it's been used by many different people, uh, many different TV shows, uh, many different authors. You can see it in um, TV shows and things that um, Rod Serling did, like The Twilight Zone, where you think you're watching this uh, very fun uh, science fiction uh, fantasy uh, half hour, but really you're learning something. And um, you can also find it in different works by different authors like Ursula Le Guin. Um, she did a very famous book, Left Hand of Darkness, where it um, had issues of gender identity um, before they became more prominent in um, society. Yes, and in particular, we're also going to discuss those same sort of concepts, but from a very specific source, Gene Roddenberry. And his vision of the future is one of utopia for humanity. Um, so Caroline, what would you say is utopian about the Star Trek world? Um, well, in a utopia, you have um, tolerance. And it shows that you have tolerance for everyone. and. You can just look on um, the Starship Enterprise and you see people from a lot of different cultures all together, all working together happily. I mean, you even have, uh, you have a Russian. Um, you have somebody who is from Africa. You have somebody who's from Japan. And um, then you also have people on there who are actual aliens from um, different planets. And everyone gets along. Everyone can tolerate everyone. Um, everyone is treated fairly and with kindness and justice and compassion. And I think that's a big part of what um, Gene Roddenberry wanted to see for our future. Yes, and that brings us to another aspect of science fiction and specifically Star Trek is that Star Trek has always had social commentary. A fair to say that while not every episode is directly allegorical to something, uh, many have direct allegorical uh, connections to uh, modern life, and that was by design. That's, like I said, not every episode is trying to teach a particular lesson. Some are just fun sci-fi romps, but others are all about 
specific ideas. Yeah. And I think the balance of the two is what helps Star Trek be so long lasting and deliver such such mm -hmm. important messages. Yeah, you can have them um, out there in space and they're um, having all these adventures, but then you like meet other cultures. And um, there was one that I, I remember uh, very much from when I was um, little and I was, I remember the first time I saw it on TV and it was one where you had um, someone who was black on the left side and white on the right side and then you had and somebody who was black on the right side and white on the left side and um, one of them was supposed to be this is the way you're supposed to be and the other ones were were terrible and dirty scum and they were all through the years they had chased each other all over the galaxy and then by the end because of all of the uh, racial tension and the fighting when they got to their home planet there was nothing left you watch it and you're like but what's the difference between you you've got one side that's white and one side that's black who cares and they're like but it's the left side that's this and it's the right side that's that and that really got me thinking I'm like why should you care why should you why should that be such an important part to you you know that you you think of that and it's definitely a talk on uh, race tolerance and at, at a time in the 60s where that was a very big social issue and um, that is how um, Roddenberry was able to um, get such a touchy topic onto network television yeah, um, and that brings us into the original series uh, pretty pretty succinctly because the original series was a lot more delivering this message of what a utopia is and what the future should be and why it's important to see those things. And Caroline mentioned there was a Russian in the middle of the Cold War who was the weapons officer. Right. And he and Chekhov was literally the guy in charge of the weapons on the ship and was security. Uh -huh. And he was also very scientifically... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, he could take over Spock's post. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no, like, second thought about it. No, nobody really thought too much about that. Yeah, and I think you see this concept of the utopia of what Earth has become, but not just Earth, they're part of a federation mm -hmm. that is a collective utopia. So they have multiple planets, it's the United Federation of Planets. So you will see Spock, who's half Vulcan. Uh, you'll see um, the Andorians in a couple of episodes in the original series. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see other members of the Federation and you'll see other species reaching out to the Federation for help with diplomatic issues. So Starfleet's, and specifically the Enterprise's mission is one of exploration, but many episodes are literally diplomatic missions discussing how different species are getting along and how humanity can act as a sort of beacon to show how the Federation, how humanity, how everyone can be. Yeah. 
we had talked about earlier about, oh, everybody thinks of Kirk as cowboy and he's uh, um, a womanizer and he was a diplomat. Yes. And that was part of it. It, it was uh, exploration, but it was also diplomacy. Yeah, uh, there's one episode, Journey to Babel, that is literally... I was a, thinking of that one, yes. Yeah, it's literally a diplomatic mission where the different members of the Federation are traveling to Babel, which is a planet specifically designated for this diplomatic conference. And you have people trying to disrupt the, uh, the diplomatic process and what that means to just the future of the Federation. So for as much as history sort of remembers the original series as this series of uh, new episode, new planet, new sci-fi adventure, Kirk rolling around on the ground with a torn shirt. Oh yeah. There's multiple episodes where literally people are just standing around a room talking mm -hmm. and discussing the future. <laughs> yes. And that's also a part of science fiction. That's also mm -hmm. a part of Star Trek at its very core, is being able to just sit down and talk about issues. And while there are moments, even in that journey to Babel, where there's a, f a couple of different fights that break out because someone's trying to disrupt the conference, mm -hmm. it's important to remember the entire point of that episode, uh, which also brings us to another aspect, and that's the social commentary. We've mentioned the, uh, the fact that Chekhov was a member of the crew, and we mentioned the different uh, groups of people who are aboard the Enterprise, uh, and science fiction and Star Trek as a whole never shied away from that, I think. Uh, it never shies away from explaining, as Caroline said earlier, the importance of talking about these issues. That's sort of what we think of when we think of the original series, mm -hmm. but we also see Star Trek evolve over the course of the next few years, and while we'll discuss movies in a, the next yeah. podcast, the next TV entry mm -hmm. is Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. So Caroline, would you care to let us know what your favorite part of Next Generation is? Well. I'd like to start with just talking about uh, the first time I saw the pilot episode and how excited I was. I was in college and uh, my boyfriend and I and one of his friends, we, we got together to watch the show and um, I really did enjoy the show and I continued to watch it, um, but our friend was so upset because of Worf because it was so different from the original Star Trek where you had the Klingons were, the Klingons and the Romulans, but mostly the Klingons were like the ultimate bad guys. You were not supposed to like the Klingons. And all of a sudden, they're a part of the Federation. There's been a treaty and um, Worf is now um, part of the bridge crew, a Klingon. And he ends up being a very important part of of the crew and you get to know through the show about Klingon society and where he comes from and his struggles between being brought up as a, a as a, with human parents but also being Klingon that is a 
big storyline um, throughout the show. Uh, I could go on and tell, tell you more about the other characters on that show that have different struggles like that, like my favorite character, Data, where he is, what, what is Data? Is Data a machine or is he, he a living entity? He is sentient and there is even a great show about that. And um, I think it's called, it's called Measure of a Man. Measure of a Man from season two. And that is a really, really great show where you're, you're trying to decide. And it may be something we're going to have to decide in the future, where we have more AI technology and um, robotics and um, maybe even androids someday. And when is this being a true being? And, and is it going to be a slave to us? Um, and there you go. That's another social issue yeah. that um, you just can go on and on with all the, the different storylines like that. And it really did because Roddenberry was, was still alive when The Next Generation um, aired and for the first um, few seasons. And you can really tell his stamp on there with the different storylines and how everybody works together and the ideas of, of utopia, as um, Tim has pointed out. Yeah, so as Caroline just mentioned, there's a couple different aspects uh, where we see the growth of the idea of utopia, where a former enemy becomes a friend. Mm -hmm. And not only just Worf, but by this point in Star Trek, there's a, uh, in the continuity, there's a treaty between the Federation and the Klingons. They are allies in some respects. Yes. Uh, you get to see more of Klingon culture through Worf, but also through other Klingons, as Caroline touched on. And they become one of the favorite aspects of Star Trek. Yeah, and, and that's funny because I really do think that the diehard fans did not like that in the beginning. And now, I mean, you go if you go to conventions and you see a lot of people are dressed like Klingons and there's even a language with a dictionary and you can learn the Klingon language and it's become very popular. Yeah, and those are those are characters who were the worst of the worst in the original series. Klingons were bad guys. And we see, and we'll touch upon this next time uh, in the movies, we see their growth. Uh, and then in Next Generation, they are full-on allies. And they're some of the best Next Generation episodes deal with the Klingons. Yes. And some of the best moments are when the Klingons come to the aid of the Federation. Mm -hmm. And you get this idea that a utopia expands, and while they may not be part of the utopia, they've reached a, not only a detente, but they've reached a truce and a treaty, and they can get along. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the growth. And we also see, as Caroline touched on as well, the social commentary from Data and many other episodes where uh, Data's whole thing throughout all of Next Generation is Data a person? Is Data alive? Uh, is Data human? Uh, and can he become human if he's not? And you, you get multiple episodes where uh, Measure of a Man is, of course, the great one where Riker turns him off. And it's this sort of like 
very melancholic mic drop moment, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. where he's just like, I've cut the strings. Right. And Riker doesn't want to do it, but he has to. Mm -hmm. That's that's an aspect of like, well, does that mean Data's not human or does it? Mm -hmm. And we, we sort of get our answer yeah. as the series progresses. And, and you touch on what are the, going to be the rights of this being? Yes. And it going into the future because you have the reason why this all happened is because of somebody who wants to basically dissect him see how he works and maybe make more yeah. well if you're gonna make more what are you gonna make them for yes. again are they are they going to be individuals or are they going to be slaves soldiers what are you what what's going to happen with that we, we see through data multiple different times what exactly he goes through um not feeling emotion getting an emotion chip at one point mm -hmm. and, it and being, we'll discuss that in one of the movies yeah. yeah and we also see through other characters what it's like to deal with different issues um certain disabilities mm -hmm. um what it's like to deal with different aspects of parenthood either mm -hmm. motherhood or fatherhood through different characters we get to see how society has progressed on uh, many, many different issues. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, that sort of moves us past Next Generation and into Deep Space Nine. Which is a very different place. Deep Space Nine is very, very different. Mm -hmm. uh, not bad by any stretch. No, it's, it's, I think that Tim and I both think it's probably the best series. We both enjoy it very much. Yes, for as good as Next Generation is, and Next Generation's very good, mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine is probably my favorite Star right. Trek. Um, and Caroline, what, what's one of your favorite memories from Star Trek, of Deep Space Nine? The, um, in Deep Space Nine, you have uh, a group of people that have kind of been thrown together. You have people who may not actually want to be there. You have both um, the Bajorans and you have um, Starfleet. And the Bajorans have just come from um, being oppressed by the Cardassians and being ruled by them. They're trying to kind of figure out who they are and where they're going to be going. And then all of a sudden you have um, uh, Starfleet and the Federation coming in, trying to nurture them, but they don't necessarily know if they want that or not. And then you have a storyline that I really enjoy. I just, I really liked the, I like the culture of the Bajorans. They, because it's a dichotomy, you have, they're extremely religious, but they had to fight uh, their oppressors. And you see that in um, one of the main characters, Kira, uh, Kira Norris, where um, she is constantly, she feels so guilty of the people that she's killed because she's very religious, but she's at the same time, she knew she had to do that to free her people. And so I liked that aspect of it. I, I think that's, that's an interesting thing to touch on with Deep Space Nine because a lot of Deep Space Nine is very gray for Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It's very much a show that deals less with uh, the black and white of situations than it does the gray. Mm -hmm. And while you have some clear-cut bad guys and good guys, you also have characters who feel a lot of remorse for things that they right. do. There's a very famous Cisco episode 
that is all about him doing something very bad mm -hmm. for the greater good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of gray in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And a lot of that comes from these characters who have to do bad things that don't necessarily want to, and other characters who sort of revel in bad things, mm -hmm. but are also good people. One of, if not the best episodes um, of the series is the one with Avery Brooks doing his monologue. Yes, that's the one I was mentioning. Where right, right. He, uh, and I don't want to spoil this episode if you've never seen it, but it is also, I think, 25 years old at this point, so I think it's a little fair. But it's the whole idea of that what happens is once the wormhole opens, they find that there is this other um, group called the Dominion, and they want to come over into our, our space, our quadrant where um, D Space Nine is, and take over. And so there is a war that starts. And Cisco is trying to figure out how far he'll go to bring the Romulans into the war because they need the help against the Dominion. Yes, and by the end of the episode, we know exactly how far Cisco will go. Mm -hmm. And it's farther than I think many other captains and commanders in Starfleet's right. history will go. But it's also, at the end of the episode, you feel bad for Cisco. Yeah, because he's looking at the camera and, and talking through the whole thing, and he's kind of like, I was right doing this, wasn't I? Yeah, and you can completely understand where he's coming from and why he's doing what he's doing, but it's also so antithetical to a lot of Starfleet, which brings us into utopia during a war. Mm -hmm and what it means for the Federation to go to war, mm -hmm. like a, a proper war. In right. the original series, we have the Cold War with the Klingons at that point, and during Next Generation, we see some conflict between uh, Starfleet and the Cardassians and Starfleet and the Romulans, right. but we never actually see like a full-scale war. Mm -hmm. In Deep Space Nine, the final few seasons are just a full war. Right. And we see what happens when Earth, which hadn't been attacked in, I think, over a hundred years at that mm -hmm. point, gets attacked. Right. And what that does to the what, powers What happens there. when you attack Utopia, when you attack a place that's supposed to be paradise? Yes. And what that means for people who really haven't had that issue in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And we see some aspects of like, part of it stumbles and part of it mm -hmm. has to sort of right itself again. Yeah, and you have the situation of on Earth, um, the bad guys, the Dominion, um, they have the founders and they're shapeshifters. So you don't know, it, it's almost like a, a, another Cold War allegory. You don't know who the bad guy is because it could be anyone, because they could look like anyone. Yes. And they can, in, and so you get this paranoia on Earth of, oh, they've, they've infiltrated um, Starfleet. And because it has been so perfect there for so long, and then it's like, all of a sudden there's martial law on the planet. 
And we find out later that there's only a handful of changelings that actually left the the home planet mm -hmm. of the founders. But just that thought. Yes, that it only took like three or four changelings to make everyone completely paranoid right. and have multiple episodes where this is an issue that has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And we so we see like Utopia starting to fray a little bit mm -hmm. and starting to buckle under some of the stresses, but also how resilient it can be. Mm -hmm. Because through it all, the Federation still maintains a lot of their principles. Some things falter. The episode with Cisco and the Romulans, the episodes where Starfleet High Command is dealing with uh, the changelings, we see them fray, but we also see them hold out in the end. Mm -hmm. um, and the s social commentary you touched on with the Bajorans is baked into the very premise of the show. Right. Uh, you can't have Deep Space Nine without that, that mm -hmm. commentary. Um, so it almost feels like it's, uh, it's a little roundabout to even like go, oh yes, there's social commentary. Well. The entire crux of it is social yeah. commentary. Uh, so for Deep Space Nine, I think we can move to Voyager, which mm -hmm. sort of pulls back away from Deep Space Nine's heavy serialization mm -hmm. and jumps into... Yeah, let, let's, let's go back to what we did before here. Instead of just being static and being yes. on a Deep Space on a station, we're going to be on a ship again. And we're gonna be on a ship that's gone farther than any other ship in the Federation. Yes, so far in fact that it's gonna take like 70 years for them to get back. And obviously, because it's Star Trek and we have a finite amount of <laughs> right. time, uh, it doesn't take that long, but it does take a while. Mm -hmm. And we see through Star Trek Voyager uh, different a different view of the Federation, one detached from the Utopia. Mm -hmm. But Caroline, what, what are some of your favorite moments, thoughts about Voyager? Well, there's something that is very important that, you, that we were talking about earlier again, um, that it's not just Voyager, it's not just that Starfleet ship you also have a Maquis ship that's brought in um, and they have to combine the um, people who are on the Maquis ship in with uh, Voyager. So you have the Maquis and to give a little bit of background, those are people who um, were in colonies that had been taken over by the Cardassians in um, Deep Space Nine, and they were fighting for um, their freedom to, to be um, their own colonies. And um, because they were trying to do some sort of, I believe, a treaty with the Cardassians, yes. is that right? So the Cardassians had lost territory mm -hmm. to the Federation. The Federation had set up colonies. Mm -hmm. And then when the war with the Cardassians ended and a treaty was made, those Cardassians, uh, those territories became the demilitarized zone. Right, so the Maquis are, are, are is a group of rebels. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so you have this group of very rebellious people trying to mesh with a group of people that are Starfleet, who are very by the book. And so you start off with that conflict of try and trying to mesh them together to form a cohesive team and with the one goal of getting home. Yes, and you, you get as you watch through Voyager exactly how well they mesh. Some do better than others. Mm -hmm. uh, at least one is a killer. Mm -hmm. He's, that's what he is. Right. What he wants to do, what he feels compelled to do. It's what he feels compelled to do. And he. Um, he I don't gets, think it's what he wants to do. I think it's what he's, he feels that he is compelled to do. Definitely after he starts uh, interacting with Tuvok. It's definitely not what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. he, he's happy being alone in what is essentially a sealed yeah, off brig. The, the actor's Brad Dwarf, but what is his name? What is the name of that character? Lon Suter. Lon Suter. And he's, I think he's probably one of the most compelling characters from the early seasons. And of it's Voyager. very interesting. You only see him like twice. Yes, he's you in like two or three episodes. Yeah, because you see him and you see when they discover that he has these mental issues and um, how Tuvok is able to help him with like Vulcan meditation and mind melds and that sort of thing. And then you get to see his redemption. Yes. Uh, and make no mistake, Lon Suter's a, a guy who's done terrible, terrible things. Mm -hmm. And but it's through, and they discuss it during the, the episode, his first episode, what should they do with him? They right. are... You know, you're, you're out somewhere, you're um, not anywhere near home, you're not, and he's on the ship, where are you going to put him? Yeah. Yeah, what, what do you do with him? You're, you're not going to, in utopian society, you're not going to kill him. Yes. And resources are already strained. Mm -hmm. There's already a lot of pressure on uh, Voyager to adapt to the new conditions they're in. Mm -hmm. um, so would it be better to just drop them off on a planet and go? Mm. Uh, or would it be better to, you know... Um, they definitely try to go for the rehabilitation. Yes. And they ultimately decide that rehabilitation is what they should do. And later on, Lon Suter ends up helping save the mm -hmm. ship at the right. cost of his own life. Right. And... Kind of at the cost of his, his sanity as well. Yeah. And it, it's ultimately uh, a situation where it's not really redemption so much as it is proving that you can sort of uh, still keep the moral high ground even in hard situations. It'll just be harder. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to bear that burden, then that's the sort of course of action you should take. But it was funny. I didn't think you were going to go with Lon Suter. I think you, I thought you were going to talk something about Seska. Seska's the exact opposite <laughs> of Lon Suter, uh, where it's a character who fits in really well, and but you sort of discover that's their entire purpose, and mm -hmm. she's a Cardassian spy in the Maquis, and <clears throat> she's had uh, surgery to augment what she looks like, so she fits in even more. And 
she ends up teaming up with the Kazon and betrays Voyager. And so you get multiple moments where like you get both sides of the extremes of what can happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, an interesting point of view because Voyager then sort of moves on from that conflict into more, I don't want to say traditional Star Trek, but it becomes less about the resource gathering right. and less about maintaining the ship than it does exploration. Well, it's interesting because it, it is very, it, they'll figure out, they'll have a plan where they need to go through a certain area to get to where they need to go. But they have they have Neelix on the show that can t for a, the beginning of the series can tell them a little bit about um, who they will meet, maybe where their resources they can find, um, who they need to be allies with to be able to get through that area. And then when Seven of Nine comes on, then you since she's part Borg, she has the memories of, of being a Borg, then she can go on and talk about species here, species there, species 728, whatever, and what they will encounter with them. So there's the kind of the first contact episode, um, not episode, but um, aspect. Yeah. Um, as they're trying to go get home. And it's in, also, it's interesting, with Seven of Nine comes on, she, she's kind of like, why are you exploring? Yes. You're, that makes no logical sense. You want to get home. Just get home. And, the, and Janeway's, no, no, that's not what we're here for. We're also here to gather data and to learn. Yes. So, yeah, there's, and, and it's kind of like, while we're getting home, why don't we and the, meet new people and, and do things? And the later seasons also touch more on much more social commentary, particularly humanity and what it means to be human because mm -hmm. we have two characters unlike say data mm -hmm. who was a more a, a singular entity mm -hmm. uh, you get seven of nine who's regaining her humanity after being turned into a board drone mm -hmm. very young mm -hmm. and having to learn what it means to be human mm -hmm. And you also have the doctor, who's an emergency medical hologram, because Voyager's doctor dies mm -hmm. in the, the first couple episodes. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because you also get other holograms come into it, and you also get other Borg that come into it. And it's just not the not just those two characters, because you, you get other, it, it becomes, the doctor is very much like Data, where is now is a hologram considered to be a sacient being. Yeah. And then, but what you have with the Borg is, what are you gonna do with the Borg? I mean, are you going to pity them because they were flesh and blood species that was um, assimilated into the Borg and then did a bunch of atrocities? Number one atrocity, being assimilating others, and then you try to bring their humanity back. And you'll have like other um, aliens as they're going along and they're like, you have a Borg on your ship? What are you, crazy? Yeah, and 
that's that's sort of one of the the key points is dealing with uh, fears mm -hmm. uh, because that that happens more than once mm -hmm. and seven of nine is no longer a board drone she ends up after the halfway through her first season as a regular crew member she ends up wanting to be more human mm -hmm. but it's very much a situation where other people don't know that and right. other people get taken by the Borg all the time. Right. They'll, they'll look at her and go, well, my family was assimilated by the Borg. Yeah. So you, they look at them, at, look at her as being evil. Yes. But it, then you ask yourself, well, is she really evil? She was assimilated, yeah. and she was, and, and being assimilated, she had to do what the board queen and the collective wanted her to do. Yes, the the Borg uh, are sort of like techno zombies they in fact they turn other people into more bored and it's also like a hive yes like a beehive mentality they share a, a collective consciousness right um, but that brings us to uh, the the final series we're going to discuss and there are other series there's uh, the modern series that are still going on uh, Picard uh, Discovery mm -hmm. and Lower Decks that are right. still going on. Yeah, and those are things that you can um, uh, borrow from from our library. Yes. Yeah, we're getting those in new all the time. Yes. And, but the final series we're going to discuss is Star Trek Enterprise, which is a prequel, which shows sort of the beginning of this utopian world. And how they become the Federation. I think that's, uh, it's an interesting subject, but the, the beginnings of Enterprise deal much more with like just getting the ship ready <laughs> because they launch a little early. And also it's interesting because of the, how humans are interacting with Vulcans. Yes. And again, we're going to get into um, movies, but you do have to go back. You have to go to one of the movies where you have uh, first contact is made with us on Earth by the Vulcans. And they feel like they need to nurture us along. And we feel like we are ready to take wing and, and fly off and um, start exploring. Vulcans urge patience in all things, <laughs> and humanity doesn't really particularly do well with patience. No. Uh, so humanity just sort of sets out their first ship is the NX-01, I believe, Enterprise? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's the test ship for the Warp 5 engine, right. and they're going to go explore, and they don't even have, like, proper weapons on the ship, just in case. Right. Uh, they have to go back after a few episodes and get retrofitted. And it's funny when they come up with some of the things that end up being um, a staple of the first show, like uh, when uh, the armory officer is trying to come up with the um, alert. Is this going to be in a tactical alert? How, how is it, what is it going to sound like? You know, that sort of thing. And I think that's, that's very funny when they're coming up with the things that will be in um, 
the original Star Trek. Also the joke that he names it after himself. And <laughs> that it's the read alert. Oh, read alert, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's it, just his personality. Yes. Uh, but yes, Enterprise has a lot of things going for it, especially in the later seasons. Uh, once the, the show sort of got its feet under it mm -hmm. and it got used to telling stories, uh, the final season yeah. is, I think, really great. Yeah, I, and I think that, that that's an interesting part of the um, first season is when you're watching them and they don't really know what they're going to be doing with First Contact. Yes. They don't know how they're, I mean, they're very... It's funny. It, it's like um, Captain Archer is very like open and gregarious. He he would be like, "Hi, we're Enterprise, and we've come from Earth, and we want to meet you." And they'll be like, "Oh, yeah." Yeah. <laughs> and he learns pretty quickly that not everyone he's going to meet is as warm and receptive. Right. Exactly. And it's one of his great regrets that he doesn't go out more prepared, mm -hmm. um, which is another interesting aspect of this idea of a utopian society, because Earth had solved its issues by the time the Vulcans got there. That's part of their first contact protocol, is that they sort of felt that Earth had advanced enough and had gotten warp drive that they could then initiate first contact. And the combination of those two things is what helped make them land. And in, uh, in Enterprise, we see that Earth still isn't like 100%, especially in the later seasons where you have, after an attack on Earth, right. you have this big blowback to the entire concept of going out and exploring. Yeah, and I, I believe in you have a lot of um, xenophobia. Yes. And so you still get those social commentaries and you get this, what does a utopia do when it first starts branching out? How does it interact with other people? Because it invites a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. Just by going out and saying hello, you invite somebody who may not be the friendliest person to respond. Mm -hmm. And how does a planet deal with that? And Enterprise, like I said, in the later seasons, I think really touches and hits on those topics very well. It just takes a little while to get up and go right. there. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of in itself a, a commentary on the Federation mm -hmm. and Earth itself. Mm -hmm. um, but would you say that um, the last season is probably the best season? I would definitely say the last season is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, you start seeing some of the highlights in season two, and season three has some great episodes despite being one long story. Um, but season four has some of my favorite moments. Yeah. I, I... I think that one of the reasons why is it goes back, you have some um, two-parters that go back into um, Star Trek lore. Yes. Where you have the, mir the mirror um, The mirror universe, universe episodes. Which is something that you have in um, the original Star Trek and in Deep Space Nine. Yes. And, um, and you get a, a direct sequel to one of the episodes of the original series, 
which is what happens to a ship that sort of phases out of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up in the mirror universe. Right. And it, it sort of expands the lore there. Mm-hmm. And you also get a ton of episodes about the birth of the Federation. Mm-hmm. And the Andorians are great. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Shran. Oh, I love Shran. Well, uh, it's our favorite actor, too. Yes, <laughs> you can't have Star Trek without great Jeffrey Combs roles. Yeah, he, he plays, oh my gosh, there's a, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back, but there's a Deep Space Nine where he plays three different characters in one episode. Yes. I mean, he's great. Yes. So, that brings us to the end. All of these series are available through the library. Yes. Uh, you can through DVD, uh, mm-hmm. and they can be checked out. Right. Um, and like I said, the new ones are coming in. Some of them yes. are on order, but um, you can go ahead and put holds on them. Yes. Uh, they're, I believe, Discovery Season 3 and Lower Decks, you can put holds on already. Uh, and I have seen Picard. Yes. I, I, seen that we have Picard. Yes. So all of these items are still coming in. Star Trek is still producing right now three separate TV shows. Mm-hmm. So uh, we And more will, to come. Yes, more to come. And we will be back with more to come next month right. as we discuss Star Trek movies mm-hmm. and similar topics as to what we were discussing with social commentary utopian societies, but also more in-depth on each movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So thank you all for joining us. I'm Timothy Roden with the uh, Library Assistant with the Litchfield Park Public Library. And I'm Carolina Rasso, and I want to thank Tim, as always, for doing these um, podcasts with me. I always enjoy them. Thank you, Caroline. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ.